This is the Ethics Lab Podcast, exploring the path from better knowledge to practical results in healthcare ethics. For the downtown east side, this is the equivalent of a fully loaded 747 crashing every few months. People are losing loved ones, family members, friends, and peers at a hugely alarming rate and in way higher numbers than we've ever experienced at the height of the HIV-AIDS epidemic. Harm reduction programs, like needle exchange programs or medically supervised injection sites, aim to respond to the addiction health status of those who are dependent on injection drugs and respond to the broader public health impact of addiction on a community, such as a high amount of drug overdose or the transmission of infectious disease through the sharing of infected needles. These harm reduction programs are having an impact, but some have questioned whether such programs inappropriately cooperate with drug abuse. Our two guests today will offer us insight into that question and the impactful experience of two such harm reduction programs at Providence Healthcare in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. Scott Harrison is Director for Urban Health, Indigenous Health, Substance Use, Maternity, and Neonatal Intensive Care at Providence Healthcare. Krista Bono is Vice President of Mission, People, and Ethics, also at Providence Healthcare. My name is Kevin Murphy, and this is Ethics Lab. Scott, can you offer a description of addiction and HIV challenges in the downtown east side of Vancouver that you were trying to respond to? The downtown east side is one of Canada's poorest um, postal codes. Um, There are a significant number of people living in the downtown east side who have experienced significant trauma and violence in their lives, and many of them do self-medicate with substances. We had very active drug scene, um, and the choice of drug in Vancouver uh, was largely heroin and stimulants like crystal methamphetamine. In 2016, we started to see the advent of fentanyl and some of the analog drugs coming into the drug scene. Prior to that, um, our HIV rates and transmission were starting to reduce. We'd had a very successful few years um, doing our Stop HIV collaborative work. So we had kind of stabilized HIV transmission. However, substance use was becoming an increasing problem in the community. We're seeing that very much within the hospital setting as well. And on any average day at St. Paul's in 450 clinical beds that we have, about a quarter to a third of patients are actively substance using. So that's a lot of patients um, that are requiring support regarding their substance use. With the advent of fentanyl, with that coming into our drug supply, and then on on the heels of fentanyl, carfentanyl arrived, both of these are 100 times stronger um, than each other, and also from the heroin that people were used to taking. As a result of that, we started to see a massive spike in overdose deaths across British Columbia, but definitely in the downtown east side was the main core, and the downtown core. And we were seeing the the consequences of that in our emergency department, our intensive care unit, our long-term care facilities. So we started to see a real significant problem. And people obviously were who are using substances were, were terrified of seeing so many of their cohorts and their peers die. 
So we did see a spike in people coming to the hospital to use because they thought that this was a safe space to use. They um, thought that, well, there's doctors and nurses in a hospital, so if I use there, I'll be safe. Unfortunately, we're not able to manage to have surveillance in all of our washrooms, all of our nooks and crannies in a very old building. So we were finding people collapsing with overdose all over our site. And so part of our response has been a very pragmatic one to try and provide some semblance of safety in a sea of fear and chaos that has been created by the the fentanyl problem. Can you give us some numbers and the impact of the drug problem in Vancouver? So for British Columbia as a whole, we're looking at upwards of 1,400 deaths a year since 2016 due to the overdose crisis. We're in a provincial public health emergency still. Um, For the downtown east side, this is the equivalent of a fully loaded 747 crashing every few months. People are losing loved ones, family members, friends and peers at a hugely alarming rate and in way higher numbers than we ever experienced at the height of the HIV-AIDS epidemic. Can you offer a typical profile of a patient going through this? One of our typical stories would involve patients who live on reserve communities in BC or other parts of Western Canada who are attracted to Vancouver for employment opportunities, Um, sometimes to escape their own community because of um, violence and family dynamics. Unfortunately, a lot of our supported housing is located in the downtown east side, so it's a very concentrated area. There's a lot of drug users and also drug dealers in the area. So you're talking about often young, vulnerable, not very street smart from a city perspective, people coming into the city ending up in a really concentrated environment that is very loud. It can be dangerous. There's a lot of poverty and psychosocial disadvantage in the community and being very quickly pulled into that drug scene. What we do know from our patients is that the drug dealers will offer their first few hits for free and then very quickly you're in debt and very quickly you're addicted, particularly to the fentanyl substances, they're highly addictive. So it's often these young, vulnerable people that end up coming through the downtown east side and very quickly falling prey to a quite a damaged community. They've often got a lot of trauma themselves, and that trauma is then added to. Um, it's piled on and on and on every day that they're living on the street or living in inappropriate single-room occupancy hotels. Um, and then they end up with us coming to help Um, get help from the hospital because they've got an infection due to their intravenous drug use. So that really would what one of our most common patient profiles would look like. Scott, if you would, could you tell us about the history of the medically supervised injection program? So injectable opiate agonist therapy was first developed in Europe, Switzerland, Germany, the Netherlands, and the United Kingdom. Um, Since then, it has expanded across Europe into the Iberian Peninsula with Spain and Portugal having successful programs. This was largely started in Zurich and Geneva um, in the very early 90s in response to a high number of street using um, intravenous drug users. So the feeling at the time in Switzerland was, well, let's try offering um, clinical grade heroin to people who are using street heroin 
take the drug out of the hands of the criminals and ensure its cleanliness, its sterile preparation. And they demonstrated it was very effective in treating their injectable opiate epidemic. North America was slightly more behind in the the thinking and philosophy and their approach to drug care. Um, And Providence was the home for the initial Naomi trial, which occurred at Crosstown Clinic um, in the early 2000s, which was a clinical research trial comparing injectable diacetylmorphine to methadone, which was the current treatment at the time. And that trial demonstrated that more people were successfully treated with injectable than were retained on a methadone program. When we applied at that time for an extension, so to continue to give people diacetylmorphine if they required it, it was denied by the the federal government at the time, who suggested that we should be looking at alternatives that already were on the Canadian market and already had a profile. So that would be hydromorphone, injectable hydromorphone, commonly known as dilaudid. So the Salome trial was conducted, which was a further three-year study comparing injectable hydromorphone and injectable diacetylmorphine, the heroin. The reason being is that heroin is only currently produced in Europe. It's not produced anywhere in North America. So, um, And the transportation of narcotics across international boundaries is complex, as you can imagine. The outcome of the Salome trial was very much that hydromorphone was as effective as the clinical-grade heroin, the diacetylmorphine. However, the recommendations from the study were that where both are available, both should be offered. Um, Providence Healthcare actually sought after the Salome trial um, a Supreme Court decision to continue supplying um, the diacetylmorphine to people um, where that treatment was effective. Um, And during that time, there was a a change in federal government. The incoming government changed some of the the rules under the um, Controlled Substances Act to enable us to import diacetylmorphine while still in a controlled way in a a more productive way so that they made the process easier for us. So we are currently able to offer both of those treatments at our clinic um, in the downtown east side. Can you paint a picture of a patient who goes through that treatment? So people come to our service. They're assessed by our addiction physicians who are specialist addiction doctors. And we really want to ensure that we retain that injectable option for the people who really need it the most. So it's really up there. If you imagine in a healthcare system, an intensive care unit sees the people who are at their sickest. And that would be the same with Crosstown, with an injectable program. They're really the people with a very complex, often long-standing injection addictions that have not been successfully treated to date with other products that are on the market and other modalities of care. So the people that do access our services have very complex addiction needs. Other treatments haven't worked for them, so they're often experiencing a chaotic lifestyle. They're having to um, conduct criminal behavior in order to to support their habit. So when they come to us, um, that that pressure is relieved from them. They're no longer having to go and buy street drugs. We are now providing them with clean pharmaceutical grade um, heroin or hydromorphone in a very controlled clinical setting. 
So we don't just provide the drug, we also undo some of the behaviors around the addiction. A lot of injection addiction is not just the drug, it's also the process. So people become quite addicted to the way that they cook the drug and inject the drug. We help to undo that by putting some measures in place. For example, we only allow injection in certain parts of the body. We don't allow allow patients to inject each other. People only have a a set period of time in the injection room to, to get that treatment done. So that helps to turn this into a clinical treatment rather than enabling someone to continue with some of the behaviors around their addiction. We see people stabilize quite rapidly. Once that pressure is off them, they're able to then start to consider other areas of their life that they want to improve. So we see people who've got very, very uncontrolled HIV now become undetectable. People having long-standing chronic health issues addressed for the first time, having their mental health addressed for the first time. And some of our long-standing clients now are back in employment and back at school. Scott, would you say that their addiction is kept under control after this program? Absolutely. We stabilize people. We reduce their dose wherever possible. And it's a, it's a bit of a fallacy that once people are on injectable treatment, they're on it for life. We're constantly looking to reduce the intensity of their treatment um, and to move them along the spectrum. And often many of our patients start to say, well, you know, this is no longer working for my life coming to a clinic three times a day. Can I try twice a day and then once a day? And is is there another form of treatment I can now attempt? Because they have something else in their life that they're doing. They're they're working or they're in full-time education. What is the success rate of the program? I guess my response would be our retention rates in the program are above 80%. So when you compare that with an oral treatment like methadone, the retention in those programs tends to be anywhere between 50 and 60% whereas we are routinely 80 to 90% being retained in treatment. Scott, what would you say are the misunderstandings about medically supervised injection programs? I think one of the common misconceptions is that by providing treatment for addiction, you are enabling people. That's something that we've heard a lot of um, and is still a common um, perception in the general public. I think that this is because addiction has often been seen and articulated um, socioculturally with um, a big moral framework around that, that somehow people have made those choices. And there's a sense from some parts of the community, well, they've made their bed, let them lie in it, or you're never going to be successful, or what is the point of giving someone who's in addicted to drugs, more drugs. And really, it's a, I understand there is very little information out there for the general public. So I totally understand why people have different perceptions around this. The way that I try and capture for people is imagining things like another chronic ill health condition that affects a large amount of the population of North America with diabetes. Of course, we don't want people to proceed to requiring insulin. But for those that do require insulin, then that's helping them manage their chronic condition um, and keep themselves healthy. And it's the same with addiction. We always want people to be at the lowest end of the spectrum. So the least invasive care and the least intensive setting. 
for some people with addiction, they may never achieve abstinence. But that's not to say that abstinence is not in our minds as healthcare providers as a potential goal. So we're not just focusing and saying, well, that's it. This person is going to be on injectables forever. There's a wide continuum of care, just like there is in other chronic health conditions like diabetes. So we're constantly doing health education, health promotion with our patients, um, getting them to consider other options, trying to move people down the escalator of care so it's as least intensive as possible. So it's really trying to help the public, I think, understand that addiction is much like diabetes. It's a chronic and relapsing condition. But there is also hope with addiction. People can recover. And that also is a message that has often been lost, um, that once you're down that path, once you're using injection drugs, you're lost. Um, And that isn't the case. Um, People can recover with the right support. So one program you offer is the Crosstown Clinic. And what is the second modality of care that you offer? So since the beginning of the overdose epidemic, we've looked at every potential possible way that we can help try and reduce the number of deaths that are occurring. One of the areas that we know works extremely well is supervised consumption. So being able to use the your drug of choice in a relatively safer area where there are peers with you. Um, who are trained to respond to overdoses. They have clean supplies for you to use, um, and they're there to offer you um, not just injectable treatment um, support, but also accessing other parts of the health system. So because of the large number of deaths in and around St. Paul's, um, we opened an overdose prevention site with our partners, Rain City Housing, So it's a peer-based model, and it's the first hospital-based, peer-based overdose prevention site in North America. We've been open just over um, 18 months now. We've had 15,000 visits, and we have had 50 overdoses prevented. So in 18 months, that's 50 lives saved, um, who otherwise, if they'd have um, injected alone, which is often the case, those people would have been part of our next round of statistics. So the overdose prevention site is located on our hospital campus um, in a trailer just away from the main building. The choice of that was actually the people that used the service. They felt safer being on the hospital property, but not having to come into the hospital to access the services. And it's been a very effective way of not only reducing death, but also getting people to access addiction services. So because we're on site, many of the people that use the OPS have been engaged in treatment and have come in through our rapid access addiction clinic and have been encouraged to seek care and emergency for other medical conditions. So it's not just the overdose deaths that we're preventing, it's also getting people into treatment. So it was really for us about completing that continuum of care. What's the difference between the individuals who are going to the overdose prevention site versus the Crosstown Clinic? The people that um, come to the OPS are what we would call pre-contemplative. So many of them are not yet ready to seek treatment or have some distrust in the system. So they tend to be people who are still experiencing quite a lot of marginalization and vulnerability. 
um, and are not yet ready to fully engage in treatment. So, and we call that pre-contemplative. But with our peer model there, we're able to move that person often to more contemplative states where they do consider other forms of treatment. I think also the the main difference between the two maybe is that we see more recreational users at the overdose prevention site. So people who are not necessarily in the depths of addiction and using all the time, but are using recreationally, maybe every few days or a weekend, and want to come and do that in a space that is safe. What's the impact of this program on your colleagues who serve those who are addicted? I think it's given people a sense of hope in what would otherwise be a very, very bleak time for us, um, particularly in BC and Vancouver, knowing that we have these tools, knowing that working where we do, the level of support that we have, um, the whole philosophy of our organization provides clinicians with hope that we're able and supported to do some very difficult, challenging work. And I think that every level of the organization recognizes that this is difficult work, but that it's also our mission. And I think having that shared understanding of this is our mission, this is what we do here, um, gives people a, a very strong sense of hope. Christopher, how do these harm reduction programs align with the mission of Providence Healthcare? When this new situation emerged, um, as we've been able to describe it at Providence in the downtown east side and the entire province, we seriously asked our que- the question, what does our mission call us to do? And as we began to understand some of the transitions in scientific understanding of who it is that uses these kinds of illicit drugs and and why they use it, uh, we quickly encountered not just uh, some temptations within religious circles to be highly judgmental of of people who use substances. We, We saw it outside of religious circles. But we took the time to ask, what shall we do? What can we do now? which reminds me of a very important uh, transitional uh, moment in our organization's understanding of substance use. And that was is that as we raised the conversation about Crosstown and about opening an overdose prevention site, we heard murmurs of, of what we understood to be some, some judgmental understandings of the psychosocial histories and medical histories of, of those that were using the drugs. And people used language like, well, it's their free choice to use this. So why would Providence want to be giving drugs to people who are using drugs? And at one level, I can understand if one is not informed about how complex a person's life is, that they might think to that. But from a theological and from a moral perspective, we asked ourselves once again, in terms of our mission, um, what does our, our our Catholic moral tradition invite us to think about? So two really important areas of discovery emerged. One was to break open uh, the myth that uh, this kind of substance use is, is a free and informed choice. And, and what that did is it created the space to understand the whole person and her complexity as she meets our clinicians and, and, and meets our services. The other was to to look at the Catholic tradition around harm reduction and ask how was that conversation emerging. So as a 
prophetic Catholic organization, we realize that the tradition of critical thinking uh, is not one of simply handing on the same thing in the same way. It is about critically discerning what is the new information required for a new response. So for us, our movement into this area of, of, of a crosstown clinic and, and an overdose prevention site uh, required some very heavy lifting from a moral and theological lens, which is work that we did. How would you respond to people who would say that the program is inappropriate or ineffective? The question you're asking really does speak to uh, the importance of a very robust uh, process of, of moral and ethical reflection, which we would argue should happen in in, in every healthcare service. Um, for us, though, what what I think was unique about this experience is that our our Catholic tradition provides us categories and ways of thinking that allow us to to discern what are the facts in front of us and what is the right or the best thing to do. Uh, we know that in the area that we're speaking about uh, decades ago, there were different conclusions brought to bear as people went through this reflection within the Catholic tradition. Um, and as the science and understanding of, of people's experiences has come more and more to the fore, we brought to bear uh, one very important category of, of Catholic thought, which is uh, that of cooperation um, as a framework for understanding how close or not close an organization that is mission-driven and, and Catholic-sponsored ought to get, in this case, um, to, to being close to people that are injecting substances. So the tradition has always taught that objectively that action on its own as an objective event uh, is is not a good. But where we were able to understand through cooperation is that that's not the question we're, we're asking. We're not um, asking whether we're supporting that kind of use or not. Uh, what we're asking is actually what does that mean from a health and healing perspective uh, for our organization and for our organization's mission? And what people may not know about the principle of cooperation is that uh, in the tradition, uh, long before we had complex issues like the one we're talking about today, there was always a question about what's the interface meant to be uh, in a society where you can't live in a silo and you are necessarily with people that are doing things that you may or may not choose to do yourself. So cooperation is a way of thinking and breaking very important myth um, one can decide to not participate in society at all, um, but that would be kind of like a black and a white approach to to living in the world, and, and that has never been part of the best of the Catholic and Christian tradition. Cooperation recognizes that there is going to be some mixing in with things that you or I may not choose to do, and how we analyze that, and this is the work we did in this case, is that we would never formally, which is the technical term, formally want to cooperate in, 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 in the kind of behavior that leads to harm. But the tradition allows for something called material cooperation, it recognizes that the primary aims of the organization are, are not at all around the principal acts that we wouldn't see as good, but are around that wraparound of a person who is struggling in his or her own life. And by being materially close to that person, we are close enough to provide an array of services that he or she may never have again. So 
our very consciously thought out program, which included national consultation, um, moved in the direction that what we were doing now with this new opportunity in front of us was immediate material cooperation, which was permissible. And that is how we made the movement forward. If I may, there's one other aspect, and um, this has probably come up in other conversations with you. There, In the Catholic moral tradition, there's not just the concept of cooperation, but there's also the concept of if we were to permit this in our crosstown clinic or on our site, uh, would this create the kind of scandal that might lead other people to think this was a good thing to do? So theologically, that's called a theological scandal. So we had to work with our ecclesial partners and the national community to suggest that uh, it would really be unfair for a reasonable person to understand that the wraparound work that we're doing um, literally that saves lives. And again, the numbers for our overdose prevention side are 50 saved lives already, um, could be understood by a reasonable person as, as actually getting too close to him or her and their suffering. And having that kind of conversation requires a certain clarity of moral thought, which, um, which we invested in before we launched this, because we also didn't want from a communications perspective to provide a service without um, a robust understanding of the reasons for which we were doing this. Uh, So I'm really proud to say that we've worked with our ecclesial partners um, around these kinds of issues to ensure that the mission of the organization continues and, um, and quite frankly, that, that lives are saved to be given the opportunity to get the care that they need. How would you articulate the intent of the program? So when one thinks about the intent of the programs uh, that we have here in all of our organizations, there is always the sense to alleviate suffering and and help people onto a road for healing. So it would be a mistake to understand that either our Crosstown Clinic or our overdose prevention site simply says, hey, this is totally okay. Let's just continue on and, and support the substance use. I think as, as my colleague Scott has shared and any clinician that is uh, at the front end of this, our intention is to help people on the path to, to health and healing. And um, the work that we do by providing, in this case, where people sometimes narrowly identify an opportunity to use a substance in a supervised way, um, actually it is not the whole picture. That 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 facilitation uh, that, that we are tolerating on site actually creates an opportunity for a healing journey. And sometimes that healing will be, uh, and we know these stories because we've had such such important success in those areas of people that, that, that diminish and reduce their use of substances. And that would be one sign of health and healing. We also hear stories of people that are engaged in these programs who for the first time in their life have the ability to establish healthy relationships where so often their histories have been unhealthy in terms of family breakdowns. And for the first time, and I remember one fellow chatting with me about this, that that he never had space to realize that he could be happy. And it struck me as an incredibly profound piece that comes from the wraparound that is that is offered. And and I think Scott's already spoken a little bit about the spiritual 
piece, we work very hard at Providence to integrate our, our, our spiritual care and indigenous health and wellness into the clinical care so that there's a holistic approach that supports the intention that I'm talking about. Appreciation to our guests today for their advice and reflections. As always, appreciation to our listeners as well. Thanks, everyone. My name is Kevin Murphy, and this is Ethics Lab. We hope you have enjoyed this edition of the Ethics Lab podcast, exploring the path from better knowledge to practical results in healthcare ethics. Ethics Lab was created by Kevin Murphy and Russell Keithline. Thanks for listening. Join us again. Thank <laughs> you.